You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. In this episode of Cloud9, we interview artist, writer, and philosopher Leili Tofik. Born into a family of artists, her work as a ceramicist has gained her notable praise and popularity on Instagram, with over 40,000 followers. Laylee found her calling when she discovered Ceramic Studio at MIT while working as a senior research fellow. Based in Boston, Massachusetts, her work is inspired by science and the geometric patterns found in nature. Laylee is passionate about the oneness of humanity and the role that art plays in promoting justice and harmony. Laylee, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Cloud9. Can you just start by telling us how you ended up in Boston? Uh, my my parents are immigrants to the U.S. My mother came from, from the U.K. and my father came from Iran in the 1950s and 60s. And um, they came to the Boston area for different reasons. And um, I was born here and I grew up in a mostly African-American neighborhood with a long and rich history. So I have several cultural influences uh, going on in my life. So tell us a bit about your creative journey. Um, maybe some of, of the projects you've delved into in the past and kind of how they've led you to what you're doing today. Okay. All right. Well, um, I am an artist and a writer and a philosopher and a researcher. I do lots of different things. And I use different media to achieve what I want to achieve. So I use clay and I use paint and I use pixels and words and whatever medium suits me uh, to make things that are about beauty and striving and failure and connection and balance and resilience and oneness. What has been the inspiration behind this kind of creative journey where you've delved into all of these different mediums? So I've always, I've always made artwork. My parents are both artists. Um, they're composers. And my father's a composer. My mother is a musician and a painter. My dad's a designer, inventor. And our house has always been a place where creativity and art have been very much encouraged. Um, and applauded. So I've always felt uh, very supported in creative endeavors. Uh, it was never looked down upon as it is um, in some families and in some cultures as being sort of less legitimate than um, hard careers uh, that people people sometimes... <laughs> the grind, the nine to five. <laughs> yes, the nine to five, which I have much respect for as well. Right, but uh, yeah, it's just been a different... And part of that, I know for my father... Um, he has always been in love with music and growing up in Iran, he didn't have a lot of chances to study or play uh, classical music, uh, Western classical music, or indeed even Persian classical music. And when he was 17 years old, uh, he left Iran for the state. He wanted to, uh, to pursue music in a, in a really serious way. And he even told his father he wanted to be a musician. And his father said, well, 
there's such a thing as a mediocre engineer, but there's no such thing as a mediocre musician. <laughs> so he encouraged him to pursue engineering. And my dad has not really taken that route with me. There are many uh, similar encouragements in the arts um, and to pursue the arts and also uh, a lot of quotations in the Baha'i writings about the role of artists in society, that it's not fluffy, it's not an afterthought, it's not decoration, it actually goes much deeper than that. Um, I wonder if I might share a couple of those that, have, that have inspired me. Okay. There's one quotation from Baha'u'llah um, written in the 1800s where he says, it hath been revealed and is now repeated that the true worth of artists and craftsmen should be appreciated for they advance the affairs of mankind. Just as the foundations of religion are made firm through the law of God, the means of livelihood depend on those who are engaged in arts and crafts. True learning is that which is conducive to the well-being of the world. And, you know, I love that idea that the artists and craftsmen advance the affairs of mankind. That really places artists in a very important position in society, that somehow it's uh, the arts are an engine and crafts are an engine that's propelling humanity forward. Um, I really believe that. And I, I, from a very early age, I wanted to be a part of that. How have you adopted this philosophy that Abdu'l-Bahá shares about propelling humanity forward through the arts, crafts, and sciences? One of the main arts that I'm working in right now, main media, is clay. And clay is a really interesting and symbolic art form. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the process by which uh, um, a ceramic piece is thrown on the wheel and, and fired and, you know, that we take... Yeah. You, you know something well, about my uncle my uncle in australia he's like a very prominent um ceramicist and, and a potter his name's peter wallace and so i would spend countless summers as a child um throwing on like a mini wheel that he'd had next to his big wheel oh, um wonderful. and so i understand i understand a, a bit about of it about it but not in kind of the the excellence that you've kind of pursued but in more of like the crisis and victory of like the time it takes to develop this craft. And also like you put it in the kiln and it comes out and you just never know sometimes what you're going to get. Well, yes, you're, you're sort of anticipating where I'm going with this, um, which is that I find the process of making uh, a ceramic piece to be very symbolic and very related to uh, spiritual learning in the world. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, in ceramics, we take a formless lump of mud from the ground, we take earth, and through a series of techniques and steps, at the end, we aim to make it into something that has form and, you know, volume and color and even function, though not everything people make uh, is intended to be functional. So you take the mud, you take the clay from the earth, you process it, and then you knead it the way, you know, bakers need dough. You need it, you get it plastic and you get all the air bubbles out of it so that it's consistent and you can work with it. It won't be crooked. You put it on the wheel and you center it 
if you don't center it, it's going to be all wonky. It can fly <laughs> off the wheel and smack your neighbor in the face with a wet pot, which is not pleasant and it's, it's not friendly bad. at all. It's a bit frowned upon. Right. Um, so you center it. And then there are principles governing the way you open that lump of clay that you've centered on the wheel so that it's going to be structurally sound. There are principles regarding the way you raise the wall to give it volume and to give it, you know, um, strength. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are principles about how you cut it off the wheel and how you dry it gradually um, so that it doesn't crack, it doesn't crumble. Uh, There are principles regarding how you, you trim or turn the piece, give it a nice foot, you know, trim off any excess, decorate it, maybe put you know, some marks or some carvings or some designs on, on the piece. And then you fire it the first time. If you haven't done your due diligence and you haven't wedged the clay properly in the first stages, um, you're going to get a nasty surprise in that it might explode in the kiln and it's hidden from you. It's like, you, you, sometimes you're tired and you don't want to do the wedging process because it's it takes a lot of energy. It's sort of exhausting. So sometimes you might be like, eh, it looks good enough. And you go through all that, you know, trouble to make the piece and to trim it and to dry it. And then it blows up in the kiln. That's really a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, then if it doesn't blow up in the kiln, you take it out and it's, um, you know, it's become porous, it's become dry, you can apply glazes to it. And then it's fired usually for a second time in a much higher uh, temperature kiln. And that's when the glaze fuses with the piece and it becomes shiny or, um, you know, a, a vitrified hard surface. And again, even if you do most of the things right in early stages, if you're not, you know, really humble to some of those um, physical and chemical principles of making the piece, uh, it can it cannot turn out well, and you'll only know at the very end. And so it's really drawn my attention um, to the importance of principle and adhering to principle in my life as a person, <laughs> and because I don't want to blow up in the kiln. But you know what I'm saying? Um, I, I want to live life according to certain guidelines for health and for well-being so that the best possible results um, can come out just the way that's the case with the pieces that I make on the on the wheel. I love that's like such a beautiful metaphor that you just shared with us. Did you did you have to experience a lot of I mean how long have you been making ceramics? About 20 years and I have experienced and continue to experience um disasters all the time, which I I have a pretty um, healthy following on Instagram uh, for my work. I post a lot of process videos and I find that people who follow along with me are often surprised when I say, oh, this blew up or this was a disaster. (laughs) They think you're perfect. After 20 years, you've got it all. You got it all figured out. Yeah, it can be deceptive. It can look like, you know, especially I use time lapse because there's a limit on Instagram of how much time uh, you it it can look um, simple. It can look easy. And also I've learned 
since a lot of people got to try pottery when they were children, they mm-hmm. think, oh, it's child's play. It's, uh, it's no big deal. And then I think if many of them sit down at the wheel, they find out how wrong they are <laughs> and how difficult. It's like a physically demanding, not just psychological and mental, but like physically demanding kind of craft that you, the muscles that you build are just insane. The physical muscle and also the sensitivity where you're kind of in a, in a dialogue with the material. You get to know the material yeah. uh, in order to be able to manipulate it. Where I think I've told you this before. One of my first teachers that I had, she was delightful. Her name was Mima Weissman. Um, she was a she was a hippie and you know very groovy and she she said at the first one of the first class she said remember if you are not centered the clay will not be centered and I remember thinking rolling my eyes like oh god give me a break what is this mumbo jumbo it was not mumbo jumbo and I have since learned that she is exactly spot on. And that if I am distracted, um, upset, and just like off my game, it nothing works. I cannot, I cannot focus and concentrate and make work. She also said, and I also rolled my eyes at this, and I also uh, now fully believe what she said, is remember, sometimes the clay wants to be what the clay wants to be. <laughs> Which... These are, these are, you know, I think you can see where I'm going with this. These are not just um, physical techniques Absolutely. about manipulating a material. Um, these are also applicable to um, life experiences and interactions with people and the need to be detached from things that are going on in life and not so, you know, n- not so... Um, attached I guess I would say to yeah it's humbling it's humbling that we're we're all these like creatures that in essence don't have full control all the time yeah yeah exactly that we don't have full control in fact we we rarely have the control that we think I mean we can we can give good inputs I think and be diligent and be uh disciplined I think but uh, you have to be ready for things to take a different turn. And one of the things that helps me do that, it's actually another one of my favorite um, quotations from Baha'u'llah that lies at the heart of what I do. Um, it's a quotation from uh, a, a tablet that he wrote called Words of Paradise. And he says, the source of crafts, sciences, and arts is the power of reflection. Make ye every effort that out of this ideal mind there may gleam forth such pearls of wisdom and utterance as will promote the well-being and harmony of the kindreds of the earth. To me, he's saying um, that uh, if you reflect that this um, this feeds back into your into your artistic process as well as crafts and sciences, and that if you reflect in this in this powerful way that he assures me that pearls of wisdom and utterance um, that will promote the well-being and harmony of the peoples of the earth will come forth. And again, it's very lofty. I don't think it's commonly how we think about artists and craftspeople and their role in society and uplifting society and helping society advance. I think it adds it adds value to 
to those core those core principles that you were you were referring to earlier and also it's the principles and like the foundation constant reflection that you have to you have to do in order to to excel and be excited about learning i have so many uh, photographs of pieces that some well-meaning colleague of mine knocked off the shelf when it was drying and I have shards, the shards of my broken heart. Uh, you know, I have pieces that I worked on for, you know, days and days. And I, I thought, this is good. Wow. Look at this piece. Such and such is going to be so impressed with this piece. It's usually those pieces where I a little bit um, get ahead of myself that something happens to them. Interesting. So when your ego kind of overpowers your your motive, yeah. it, it kind of dictates what the future of that piece will be. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's pretty consistent, pretty consistent in my life that I find that if, if I'm working on the wheel and I start getting, you know, a little bit proud of myself, like, this is great. Oh, check this out. You've really outdone yourself. My mind starts to wander in this way. I swear to God, like, I will, like somebody will walk by and by accident step on my wheel and make the thing fly off the wheel. Like it's curtain, you know, there's plenty to learn from mistakes and you actually can stagnate quite easily if everything is, you know, you're not taking risks and everything goes the way you expected. You're not pushing the limits. So I'm, I'm not totally, uh, you know, despondent at all when things don't go according to my wishes. Do you find that also affects your life outside of ceramics? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It affects my perseverance. It affects my feeling of detachment from other things in life um, and that I don't have to be in control all the time. It impacts my learning attitude that, you know, it's a, it's a daily reminder because I'm making work all the time. It's a daily reminder. You've got to be learning. You know, don't let a problem slip slip by without mining the lessons that were in that in that issue or that problem or that unexpected outcome. So yeah, I feel like a miner. <laughs> miner with an ER, not an OR. I'd like to kind of speak a little bit about the parallels and the bridge that you've kind of created with your ceramics and science. I think that's quite unique? Yeah, I was, uh, I was doing ceramics for a long time at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the environment there, uh, there were a lot of scientists, uh, we were all working alongside each other. And the approach to making art was um, a lot of systematic learning, I would say, and experimentation. And that freedom that comes when you are eager to experiment and you don't feel, you know, limited by trying a lot of different things, you know, you're excited to try a lot of different things. So yeah, ceramics is a very science heavy um, art form. There's a lot of chemistry, there's a lot of physics, and then beyond the actual materials and manipulating them, um, you know, to the best of your ability, there's also you know, the mathematical elements of geometric design. I'm very interested in what happens to uh, a repeating matrix or um, pattern on a curved surface. I think that's really, really fascinating. And I explore that a lot in the pieces 
um, that I make, that idea of harmony and order um, and the relationship of, of a lot of different marks to each other and how that changes um, on a curved surface. So throughout this interview, you've, you've referred to some of your own mentors and your own experiences as an artist and as a philosopher. I'm curious to know what advice you have to give to other people out there who are pursuing a life in the creative industries and also perhaps some of the ways that you're already sharing and distributing some of your experience and your knowledge. As I said, I engage with thousands of people through social media, you know, every day. And one of my purposes in posting videos of my process, including mistakes, including outcomes that I didn't expect, um, as well as, you know, things that I'm really excited about and that came out in a way that I'm, I'm happy about, is to encourage other people to participate in the process of making art. I have encountered so many people in my life who say, uh, I'm not an art person. Just like they say, I'm not a math person. I, I, have, I think I encounter equal numbers of people, but I believe every person can participate in art. And I feel that it's very sad if they're deprived of that opportunity and that there's much joy and delight awaiting them if they can only find a positive environment in which to try that and to be courageous and to sort of bite the bullet and be like, oh, it looks like something a four-year-old made, but I enjoyed learning. <laughs> so not trying to be overly critical of the results of our own like individual process. In the Baha'i writings, um, there are a lot of references to the idea that work done in the spirit of service is worship, and that there isn't only one way to pray. You know, you, you're not just praying when you're in a house of worship. You're not just praying when you're sitting down and uttering those words, that prayer can actually be in the form of action. And if it is consecrated um, and dedicated in the spirit of service, that, that actually elevates what you're doing to the level of prayer. This is very important to me. And I actually think about this before I ever do my work. I, I say prayers. I try and be as mindful and prayerful as I can be when I'm making something as focused, as concentrated. And I use, there's a particular um, excerpt from a letter that Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, wrote to somebody who was asking his advice. He says to her, I rejoice to hear that thou takest pains with thine art. For in this wonderful new age, art is worship. The more thou strivest to perfect it, the closer wilt thou come to God. What bestowal could be greater than this, that one's art should be even as the act of worshiping the Lord? That is to say, when thy fingers grasp the paintbrush, it is as if thou wert at prayer in the temple. I think that's a, that's a really radical thing to say, uh, that making something is bringing you closer to God, bringing you closer to your creator and actually helping you know yourself better. And uh, I feel that if more people were involved in the action of, in the act of creation and of making things and of focusing in a, in a prayerful manner like that, a mindful manner like that, I think we might reduce some of the, the violence and the, and the conflict in the world. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And 
I'd be curious, maybe at this point, maybe we can discuss some of the ways that you're encouraging other artists out there to promote unity and oneness through through their art, perhaps in your social media following or other platforms. I'd like to continue to share with a lot of people, increasing numbers of people, this idea of the importance of making things and being part of craft and art and music uh, in life and, you know, using my social media and other, other means to do that, you know, creating more work, um, being part of spaces where people can participate uh, in that kind of thing, because there's a connection between this and social justice efforts that I'm doing in other aspects of my life, uh, mostly with regards to uh, race unity um, in the U.S., which is the most uh, vital and challenging issue confronting us, I believe, um, which is that without a vision of, you know, beauty and harmony, it's very difficult to address some of the societal problems that we have. I think it's very easy to become despondent and despairing. Um, I think about uh, this is a this is a uh, an idea from a paper by Dr. Farzan Arbab, who's a physicist and an educator um, uh, and a person who has served on some Baha'i uh, administrative institutions. Um, he talks about this idea of uh, the basic forces that are needed to shape an individual's sense of purpose, which he names as attraction to beauty and the thirst for knowledge. Um, he says that attraction to beauty gives proper direction to purpose and beauty and perfection become standards and guiding lights by which one is able to judge one's own behavior. On one level, this attraction manifests itself in love for the majesty and diversity of nature, in the impulse to fashion beauty through the visual arts, music, and crafts, and in the pleasures of beholding the fruits of these creative endeavors. And I just, I think that that is so wonderful to think about, you know, guiding lights by which one is able to judge, judge one's own behavior and that you have to have, be cultivating some vision of beauty and harmony in order to examine your own behavior and improve it. And I think that that's at the, at the heart of any efforts to um, achieve social justice, uh, to achieve harmony with the people you live around to be of service to the people that you are around, uh, be, to be of service to your neighborhood and to your community. So Laylee, earlier you touched on these basic forces that shape individual sense of purpose and improve our own behavior. And, and now you just spoke a little bit about uh, service to humanity and service to your community. Could you kind of touch on some of the ways that you're involved in various social justice initiatives? Could you speak to some of those experience that you've been involved in? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh I don't know how much uh, listeners are aware, so I'm just going to, you know, give a little bit of an overview as I understand it, which is that Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, he visited North America in 1912, and he visited Boston. He he even visited uh, the city outside of Boston where I live. Um, he gave talks in, you know, 
the temples and orphanages and churches and theosophical societies and universities and all kinds of different uh, settings where he exhorted people to oneness and to unity and to love. He encouraged people to independently investigate the truth and to weigh truth for themselves, to see truth with their own eyes and not through the eyes of their neighbors. Um, I find that the talks that he gave in 1912 are as relevant today as uh, they would have been in 1912. I mean, it's as though he gave them today in the same in the same meetings, which on the one hand is really astonishing and amazing. On the other hand, it's kind of depressing because it means that I don't know how much how much um, progress we've made towards the things that he exhorted us to do. One of the major things that he spoke about in the U.S. is that he said that the issue of, of racism is the most vital and challenging issue confronting us, and that um, if we do not address this and engage with this issue, he actually uses extremely strong words. He says, blood will run in the streets. And he said, more than this, I wish not to say because it will sadden the hearts of the friends. So this is an extremely dire an important warning that he was drawing our attention to. Um, he he lived this this advice that he gave people, um, where in his journeys in the U.S., he, for example, was to give a talk in a hotel in New York City, and when uh, friends showed up to see the talk who were of African descent they were barred entry into the hotel because it was a segregated hotel. And so Abdu'l-Bahá shut it down. He said, fine, not giving a talk, uh, which my, all my friends can't come to, we'll take it somewhere else. And he re rescheduled it for another location where everybody was welcome. Or in Washington, DC, he was invited for a, a banquet given by very wealthy white society people um, in the DC area. And he arranged for Louis Gregory, who was an African-American lawyer and thinker, um, to come and meet him at the house where the, where the banquet was taking place. And he called for a chair and he seated Mr. Gregory at the seat of honor at the head of the table next to him, which was an absolutely shocking action to be taken in Jim Crow America of 1912. So he really set a lot of examples. And in 1938, his grandson, Shoghi Effendi, wrote a book called The Advent of Divine Justice, in which he exhorts people um, to take up this issue. And he gives what's really a very practical uh, behavioral model. And so in our area, we've been looking at this really beautiful ideal and, and hope and vision of unity between the races and close and loving friendship between people of different races um, and how that might be achieved. It's shameful actually that, you know, we should know and we should be actively doing this every day of our lives. If we care about the future of society and we care about people, like this is, this is our duty. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure that many people out there also care about the futures of our society and, and feel the weight and responsibility. 
Um, you've, you've shared so many examples of how art and creation can promote oneness and justice. And I feel very humbled and inspired by this conversation and also the work that you're doing. And I can't thank you enough for the time that you took in sharing your insights and experiences with us today. Thank you, Laylee. Thank you so much, Shadi. I mean, to be interviewed by one of the people who inspires me so much in her artistry and also your music accompanies me a lot of the time when I'm making it. It's really, it's a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm very humbled. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to stay in touch and see and hear more from you in the future. Thank you, dear. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.